I understand that uh, when you were going through a period of doubt, you almost became a Buddhist? I did. That's... Yeah, I wasn't, like, thinking there were some good points. Mm -hmm. I was... I don't know. I was pretty... I don't know. I was jumping in with at least one foot, maybe half the other one. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother called me. I lived states away. And she wanted to see how I was coming with my doubt. She's a devout Christian. And I told her that uh, I thought I was moving in that direction and I would probably become a Buddhist in about in a few months. Mm -hmm. And uh, she wasn't too excited. But uh, anyway, that was obviously a phase which passed. Pardon? A phase which passed for you. Uh, it was. It, it came at the end of my doubting. So I was. It was the uh, storm before the calm, mm -hmm. because I was. I started getting my act together after that. I started realizing that there was really a good basis for Christianity. And I understand that um, amongst your uh, many interests, you were a coach for a, an ice hockey team. Is that right? I was for nine that, years. That sounds to me like a fantastic sport. It's kind it's of legalized thuggery. I'd it's love to have played that, really. You should say that again. Did you Legalized thuggery, which is my style of uh, football. He told so. me that today before church. Legalized thuggery. I will remember that for a long time. You will, you will be quoted. Oh, love. In oh. The, in the, International in recognition. The yes, yes. Yes, and I'm starting to forget where I was now. But I didn't tell the story this morning, Peter, about my first game as a coach. I didn't say no, that. No. I told it a day or two ago. Uh, my first day as a coach, we, I was coaching my first team. We're playing a very good team. And we were leading by one goal and the game was just about over. And the referee blew his whistle, time out, I mean time over. And just about the time he did it, my captain, who would have been a pro hockey player if he were larger, he was pretty small, but he was just an incredible skater. And he took the captain on their team, who, if any of you play hockey or watch it, um, the fighters on the hockey teams are called goons or policemen. And that's because they guard the leading score so that nobody's rough on the score or the fighter comes after the guys. Well, as the game was over, he took that guy into the boards, and they didn't wear helmets in those days. Mm -hmm. they were, the helmets came just directly after. And he took the guy into the boards, and the guy's head exploded. He just hit the boards, and his... And every, every hockey player is used to being cut. So, but this guy did this number and started going wild because he was the, the goon on the other team. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this started a 20-minute nonstop brawl on the ice. And I turned to tell my players, I don't want anybody leaving the bench. Besides, you can have 20 players in your team and you can only have five out on the ice, not counting the goalie. And I turned to tell my guys not to leave the bench and I realized every one of them was out on the ice. <laughs> That's 40 guys fighting. And I looked up 
and that guy who was bleeding like crazy, he had somebody down behind the net and he was pounding on him. And I thought, why aren't my guys doing anything? Because I was about five guys on my team who loved nothing better than a good mm -hmm. fight, but they weren't doing anything. So I ran across the ice in my street shoes because at the end of the ice, the ice is all, at the end of the game, the ice is all scarred up. And you can pretty much walk safely on it. I ran across the ice to see why my guys weren't doing anything. And when I got there, I found out that he had the referee down on the ice. <laughs> and after it was over, the referee had a cut about that big up in his hair. And he said, I don't, the guy's name was Bobby. I don't know why Bobby did that. He's actually a friend of mine. <laughs> so if that fits your definition. Good, good. Now, just completely to change the subject, um, one of the people that you've um, debated with in, in the past about three times is a chap called Anthony Flew, who was a professor um, of uh, philosophy and probably a very well-known one in Britain, but he was also known as a, a pretty um, strident atheist. How did your debates with him come on? Well, it started in 1985. I went to Dallas, Texas for a debate which, I don't know, to this day may be the biggest series of debates in one weekend, maybe in the world. There were 25 or 35 debates that weekend with hugely well-known scholars, both atheists and agnostics. And it was called Christianity Confronts the University. And every, every debate, uh, like I said, they were Christian scholars against um, agnostics, atheists. That was the beginning, pretty close to the beginning, when people started talking about intelligent design. They weren't even using the words, but, but uh, four of the top guys who would become intelligent mm -hmm. design guys battle against four atheists who said it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. Existence of God, uh, ethics, is the New Testament reliable? And Tony Flew was one of the fellows in the debate that was a four-on-four -four debate on the question, is there a God? And they had very well-known atheists, very well-known theists. And I will always remember, um, I'm, I'm just doubting. Does anybody in here know the name? I'm doubting. <laughs> um, does anybody here know the name Alvin Plantinga besides Peter? Oh, look at that. Wow maybe the most accomplished philosopher of religion in the world. Just a brilliant, brilliant man. Nobody likes to lock horns with him. He was one of the four theists. And for whatever reason, he was about the only one that was talking. Now, one of the atheists weren't talking much, but the three others were. And they came up to me after the debate, and they said, one of the, an atheist told me, we think we lost the debate. I said, I thought you guys made some good points, to tell you the truth. And he said, nope, we lost the debate. And I said, why? And he said, all of them could not move Al Plantinga by themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction. Tony was one of the ones on the platform. Mm -hmm. And we went out to dinner with him afterwards. And uh, he almost got killed. He almost got killed right in front of us. He is a typical absent-minded professor, one of the worst of that kind you can 
see. And we, there were three or four of us, and we were walking, and we were waiting for a light on a really busy highway mm -hmm. in downtown Dallas. And he just kept going like this. And I think, and I think, and I think, and he walked right off the, the curb into the traffic, and two of us grabbed him. We didn't even know him. Two, I mean, we knew him by reputation, but two of us grabbed him and brought him back, and he went, oh, oh, like that. But I mean, he was just far from getting hit. Mm -hmm. So that was our beginning. And we started dialoguing about the resurrection at dinner, and one guy present said, he said, you guys have said enough. Don't, don't spill the beans right now. Don't get this stuff out in the open. Tony, would you come to our campus and debate Gary in the next few months? And Tony said, I'd love to. And it was done that night. So. And he, before he died, he moved from atheism to theism? In 2004, you can find this online if you're interested. By the way, a book came out later, and this is his reputation. The book is called... There is no God, and no is crossed out, and A is written above it. So, there is a God, colon, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And that book came out shortly before he died, but just a few years before that, in 2004, he said that... Uh, he had become a theist, and I was the one that did the interview. We were very good friends. I mean, but you know, politics, mm -hmm. other stuff, not just mm -hmm. why aren't you converted? We just mm -hmm. talked as friends do. And so I interviewed him, and you can find it online. The key word is pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. My pilgrimage from atheism to theism by Tony Flew and Anthony Flew with no H in it, and Tony, and Tony Flew, and Gary Habermas. You can find it openly online. It's uh, one of the most downloaded philosophy articles for, ever since 2004. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Gary. We've, we've got a sort of bit of a, you know, context to understand um, where you're coming from. Yeah. and Flu. Yeah, that's, that's the right. two bookends. So, so we're, um, Gary's going to address us for about 50 minutes, then we'll have an opportunity for questions and answers. So as he goes along, do sort of scribble a, a point or two if you'd like to ask him, and we'll wind up by, by 9 o'clock. You said I could have till tomorrow morning. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. Since I'm already up here, I'll stand here for a couple of minutes. Then I'm going to come down to the floor, and for most of the lecture, I am going to mark off a timeline, and you'll see why. When we do history, when you study history, um, my, in case you wonder, because somebody later might say, but you're not trained in history, why am I doing this? Um, my PhD is history and philosophy of religion. And I'm chair of the philosophy department of liberty. But I've done most of my work in history. And when you, do, when you write history, historians are looking for certain things. Two of the most important, they have a lot of tools they use. Historians have tools, believe it or not. They're usually rules of evidence. How do you apply evidence? How do you apply tests for truth to evidence? 
and two of the most important, when you can get them, because in the ancient world, they're very rare. And the two are two E's, early and eyewitness. Early and eyewitness. Let me start with the second one. You want people who saw the event. And in, and, and in cases where you can't get somebody who saw the event, you want to get somebody who's as close as possible, like maybe one of their best friends was uh, one of the main witnesses, and they've talked to their friend many times. That's in rare instances where you can't get uh, an eyewitness. But the more, the better. And secondly, early. You think, well, they're the same, aren't they? No. Not every eyewitness is early. For example, uh, years ago I heard about a man who was writing his memoirs of World War II, and he was writing them in 1990. Now he's, a, he's an eyewitness, but it, his story is at least 45 years later. 45 years doesn't excommunicate you from writing history. But 45 years is enough time to start being careful and make sure the stories aren't kind of growing. And, but 45 is fine. But that's not an early eyewitness. That's a moderate or maybe starting to get toward a little bit later eyewitness. So not all eyewitnesses are early. But Christianity has a much better case than most people make. And I'm going to tell you some trade secrets among the data. Uh, in fact, not only will virtually every skeptic agree with what I'm going to say tonight, now I'm going to, I'm going to have to put an asterisk there and tell you what I mean by skeptic in a minute, but not only will virtually every skeptic agree with me, <clears throat> but I'm going to use material. Now, um, I'm still deciding what I should do about that one part of the lecture. I don't want to drag it out too long. I'll talk about the Gospels for a few moments. But when I get to the middle of the room and do that side, I'll start in the middle. When I get there, that's the part of the lecture where I'm using only the data that skeptics allow. Okay, what's your definition of a skeptic? Because you might be sitting there and you might say, because I'm a skeptic and I've read some of your stuff and I don't agree with any of the stuff you're using. Okay, fine. First of all, I'm not talking about the conclusion. These people will be atheist, agnostic, or otherwise non-Christian, New Testament scholars, some, some relevant field. That means they will be a New Testament scholar, a theologian, an historian, a classic scholar, a philosopher, an archeologist, one of those fields. But when people say, well, I don't agree with any of your facts, I'm, I'm guessing you don't specialize in one of those fields. So it doesn't really count. We have a lot of people in our country who, well, I don't want to offend anybody in here, but a lot of people without faith, a lot of atheists today are quite angry, and they'll tell you they're angry. So it's not just something I'm making up. Christians could be angry too, but there seem to be a, fairly high percentage. In fact, atheists are starting to get on atheists for being too angry. It's, there's a lot of strange critiques going on now. 
But a lot of people who write the most virulent blogs and essays are young people, say 16 to 20, or maybe so you could expand it, 16 to 25, and they may not even be in school, they may not have a degree, they may not have studied this area, but they're going off on the area. That's not what I mean when I say all skeptics agree with me. I don't care how much of an unbeliever the person is. They could be as radical as you want. They could be an atheist atheist, the head atheist, agnostic. They could be Jewish New Testament scholars, of which there are a number. Um, they could be uh, other groups of non-Christian belief systems, but their specialization is New Testament. Those people, in fact, if anything, I'm gonna cite a bunch of them tonight, but if anything, uh, they, I think I'd almost rather talk to them than to others because they could be extremely honest and they'll say, now this isn't my view because otherwise I wouldn't be an atheist, but I believe these facts are all true. So let's put it this way. You're building a house and you have a bunch of lumber. And to make an analogy to my argument, you would agree that every piece of lumber is solid, cut to the right extent, I mean cut to the right length, right kind of wood, everything. You're gonna allow the building blocks, but you're not gonna be here to build the house. You're just the guy who got all the materials together or who delivered the materials. There's a lot of people who think the materials are solid, but they don't want to move from their atheistic position. We can talk later about why they don't want to become something other than an atheist. Now, some do. Anthony Flew is a great example. To my knowledge, to be honest with you, to my knowledge, Tony Flew never became a Christian. He might have. I mean, who knows what a person does privately, and I didn't talk to him the last maybe two months of his life. So I don't know what happened at the very end, but he did, if anything, but he did become a theist. You say, well, why did he change? Well, he thought the material was overwhelming. He used to use a phrase over and over again because the atheist got really upset with him because he was the best known philosophical atheist in the world. Richard Dawkins got upset with him. And um, at least judging from a line in his book, when Tony became a theist, Dawkins said, Tony Flew used to be one of the best philosophers in the world. Now he's horrible. And as far as I know, the only difference is he came to believe in God. So I guess that automatically made him horrible. Um, so a lot of skeptics got upset with him. And they started calling him and berating him on the phone. He lived in Reading at the end of his life. And it was so bad that his wife, also an atheist, well, he wasn't then, but she was still an atheist. She would no longer, she forbid him to answer the phone. And she said, I'll answer the phone, and I'm not gonna let you talk to these types who just wanna go off on you, because it was really upsetting to him. So some people do change their views. Okay, all that. And I'm setting this up because 
later in the discussion, before we finish our 50 minutes, uh, I'm going to say a few things about, well, if the facts are as rosy as you think they are, why don't people believe? That's a question I'm working up to right now. I mean, I'm giving the beginning. All right, let me do it this way. Where are these early eyewitnesses? Paul, in the early verses of 1 Corinthians 15, well, starting with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, it's often called the resurrection chapter. It's 58 beautiful verses, at least for Christians, on the subject of the resurrection. And Paul starts out, and he says, when I came to Corinth, I gave you folks the gospel. Okay, footnote. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel in Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek. The gospel in Greek is the word evangelion. It literally means good news. So he said, when I came to you, to you unbelievers, when you were unbelievers, he said, I gave you the good news. All right, footnote. What data comprise the good news? What is the factual side of the gospel? Whenever a definition, it's not that many times, but whenever a definition of the gospel is given, the gospel historical information that a person needs to believe to be a Christian, these three are always present. Now, other things are present once in a while, but these three are always there. The deity of Christ, he's the son of God, died, the full comet is, died on the cross for our sins, was raised, the full comet is, was raised bodily, raised bodily. Died on the cross for our sins, raised bodily, and he's the son of God. Over and over, Paul, Romans 10, 9. Actually, if we have time to talk about this, it's actually not Paul. Paul's quoting another source in Romans 10, 9. But this is the verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and three verses later, Paul defend, defines the word Lord and he uses the word Jehovah. So, Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead. So the order there is deity, resurrection, death. Raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. So that's the early proclamation. And Paul said the first two verses here. If you did something about it, and I often describe this as saying, I do to Jesus. Why do I do that? Well, for one thing, I do is a commitment that's pretty analogous to the commitment of faith in the New Testament. And I do commitment at the altar is the words, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and death, till death do we part. So it's a very important decision that theoretically takes a long time. That's one thing, it's a very important commitment. But the second reason I use that phrase is because in the New Testament, the words for believe, um, pistuo, or the noun, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, if you transliterate, Greek has a different alphabet than we do, but if you translate it in English, it's P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. And it means to, really it means to jump in with both feet. It's a stronger word than the English word believe, 
and it means to be committed. It means to surrender. It means to, one definition you find in the Greek dictionary is to cast yourself upon, hence the jump in with both feet. Cast yourself upon. We have a phrase in the U.S., I don't know if you use it here, a fishing phrase. We say, he went all in, hook, line, and sinker. Do you see that here? Hook, line, and sinker. Well, that just means all in. There's games where you're all in, you know, poker, and you put all the chips in. Well, trusting Christ is a, everything you have. So I say it's analogous, I think, in several ways to I do. So here's what you have. Paul said, you guys responded. You responded affirmatively to your belief in the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus with an all-in response, an I-do response, those four things. Three that God does, the gospel, and one response that we do. All right, first two verses are, are done. And Paul says, when you, he says, if you've come to Christ, you made that decision, let me tell you about this. And verse 3 is the beginning of the most important text in the New Testament. Paul says some words in English that are not, they're not hard. They're very easy words, but they're sort of bombastic in this argument. Paul says, when I came to you, Corinthians, he said, I gave you that which I also received. I gave you what I was given. That's like saying I passed material. Well, it's not like saying, it is saying. I gave, I passed material on to you that wasn't mine. I got it from somebody else. I gave it to you. I delivered unto you that which I also received. I gave what I got. And then he defines what he gave. He says, Christ, the title, I say this kind of half humorously, but I also say it by way of information. Christ is not Jesus' name, right? It's not Jesus Christ. Jesus, which is the ninth most common male name in his time. Very common name. But Christ is not his family's last name, right? Jesus Christ means Jesus the Christ. And Jesus the Christ means Jesus the Messiah. So you're saying something, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. So he says, Christ, doesn't even call him Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried according to the scriptures, buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. He rose and he appeared. And then Paul gives a very, very early list of six, six appearances, three appearances, are to individuals, three appearances are to groups of people. That's important. Here's another important element. Skeptics often say, why doesn't he appear to skeptics? He does. The first group of six has two skeptics in it. Two out of six. So uh, a couple key members of that first group, now they became Christians later, I always find it interesting when skeptics say, why doesn't he appear to more skeptics? And that's going to be part of a, why don't people believe later? But for now, I'll say this. He did appear to skeptics, but if what you want, if maybe you're a skeptic, 
if what you want are people to whom he appeared and they stayed skeptics, as far as we know, you won't find them. The appearances were so incredible, as far as we know, there were a few skeptics. Every one of them became believers from seeing. But it is interesting that two out of six were skeptics. And three out of the six were individuals, and the other three were groups. So that's important. And Paul adds his name to the list at the end. He's named six, but he adds his testimony at the end. So we're assuming that originally there were five in this group. Two individuals, three groups. Okay, that's the information. That sets, that sets up the stage. Okay, now, let's go back to history. What do we need? Early eyewitnesses are two of the keys. You need early eyewitnesses. I'm going to go down here. And this is the death of Jesus. I'm going to call this ground zero. I could say 30 AD, which is the most common date. But because I want to go to and from the cross, how much time we have, I want to argue early. I'll just say ground zero. It's the gap that I'm interested in. Most Christians would say our best sources, and I'll use critics' dates. Believers' dates are usually a little bit earlier, but it's really of no consequence in the argument. It won't change anything. Critics will say Mark wrote at about 70 or plus 40, all right? 70 or plus 40. Matthew writes at about 80 or plus 50. So far, we're right in the range of that man who wrote his memoirs of World War II in 1990. Luke, at 85 or plus 55, subtract 30. And everybody puts John at about 95 or plus 65. And so you have critics saying regularly, yeah, those sources are way too late. Way too late? Yeah, I mean, so late is to be inadmissible. 40 to 65 years is inadmissible? So nobody can properly remember something from plus 40. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet you there's a lot of people in this room who believe some key events from 40 years ago, or 65. And usually, here's a rule of thumb, usually we remember... Most of all, those things which are most important to us. The birth of our first child, our wedding. Maybe when you graduated from school, whatever your you know, last degree is. Even if it's high school, you'll remember often that key event. Maybe the time you scored the winning, the winning score for the biggest game you've ever been a part of. We tend to remember those things. What's helpful is you may have some people who were there too. Maybe a couple other people saw the baby born. Maybe a bunch of your old buddies, maybe you get together every year and celebrate that score. And a number of people were on the field. Uh, you definitely could uh, remember any number of other events. You know, graduation, you might be at a graduation ceremony. So it could be a big group. 
And people can remember things that far, but critics like to say these sources are too late. I debated a well-known atheist one time, and he said that. He said the Gospels are way too late to be helpful. And I said, it was a dialogue. There were two pulpits, little pulpits like that. We were about 15 feet apart, hundreds of people. And I said, what do you think about Alexander the Great? He said, uh, good guy. We know a lot about him. Do you? Yep. We know a lot about Alexander. Yep. You sure? Yep. I said, when is the first major source? I don't mean a sentence here in, the, you know, in stone or a, a, a something underneath the statue, but a significant amount of writing. In this case, it happens to be a biography. When is our first major source for Alexander? And he said, I don't know. So well, you should, if you're going to make that statement that the Gospels are too late. If that down there, instead of Jesus' birth, if that is Alexander's death, a little more than 300 years B.C., the earliest source for Alexander on the same grid is like this. And I'd have to keep going. I didn't tell the group this this morning, but one of these times I did this lecture, I was doing Alexander, I went out the side door, I locked myself out. Somebody, I had to knock on the door and somebody had to let me in. Okay. Alexander, the earliest source for him, major source, plus 280 years. 280. It's almost 300. The two major sources for Alexander are not the early ones. The two best sources for Alexander, you can still get them, you can go buy them. Plutarch's Alexander and Arian, A-R-R-I-A-N. Plutarch and, and Arian, when did they write? I'm going to be going way through that wall because Plutarch and Arian wrote 425 to 450 years after he died. Four and a quarter to 450. And no one... I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say no one believes in everything in there. You know, that varies from person to person. But people don't they don't hesitate. Yeah, Plutarch's good. Arian's good. Plus four and a quarter. Yeah. Mark at plus forty, ten times better. In terms of the gap? Oh, yeah, Mark stinks. Arian? Right on. Good. Now, that sounds like a little bit of prejudice to me and doing history. And I told the guy that. And he went on to make another comment or two. It, it, I got I to gotta tell you, it really angered me. I'll tell you what he said. 
I don't like to tell people because I don't even like to mislead them, but he went on. He goes, yeah, I'll tell you further too. He said, we have a source that Caesar, he didn't say which one, Caesar appeared to 12 people after he died. He said, so what good is an appearance to the disciples? Well, one thing that's interesting, that seems like he's admitting the appearance to the disciples. But guess what? There is no reference to any Caesar appearing to anybody, let alone 12 people. There's nothing like that in the sources. Nothing. And when he said it, I was ticked. Because if, if the debate had been over and I walked out of the room, there would have been hundreds of people misled. And I could see them saying, wow. Christians saying, I never thought about this. If 12 people saw Caesar, how unique can Jesus be? Yeah, and he said, yeah, there's an historian. And I was ticked because people say things sometimes off the top of their head without data, without sources, and I'll prove that to you. I said to him, I said, there is not one source in history that says anything like that. And I said it like that real firmly. And he said, well, don't ask me the source. I said, no, I won't ask you the source. I'll tell you the source. You're talking about Suetonius's 12 Caesars, and it's not Julius Caesar, it's Caesar Augustus. And nobody saw him after his death. And the guy went just like this. He's leaning on the pulpit. He dropped his head and he said, he said, I withdraw my critique. Now, what a stupid comment. Seriously. Because you misled hundreds of people in that room. And if somebody hadn't called you on it, you would have let it stand. And you don't know the reference, because there isn't any. And there's nothing like that in history. And again, he just went, I'm sorry. Sorry's not enough when you're, mi when you're misleading people on a major... How many people would they have told? How many people would say, this is a, this is a tie? You know, 12 sources for... 12 appearances for Jesus, 12 for for Caesar. Doesn't work like that. All right. So I'm just making the point that on their own, 40 to 65 years is not too long. We will allow it in any field like the World War II commentary at 45 years minimum. I don't know what part of World War II it was, but it was at least 45 years. So 40 to 65 is not self-condemning. In fact, today, the major theory about the Gospels, and this was not found out by, a, by some conservative Christian. It was found by a classic scholar at the University of London. He made the thesis, he, he made a really involved thesis, and he compared the Gospels to Greco-Roman biography. And he compared them in a whole bunch of aspects, and he said, we can only say that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biography. It took the field by storm, and no matter how liberal or conservative you are, the majority view today is that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biography. 
It's pretty good. As a genre, it's pretty good. So, 40 to 65, good stuff there. But I'm going to make an argument from this point on. I'm going to go with the Apostle Paul, which every scholar thinks is a better argument. Everyone. How do you know that? Bart Ehrman, I'm going to use his name a few times, Bart Ehrman is probably the best-known New Testament critic in the world. Almost all his books are published with Oxford. He's an American, but almost all his books are published with Oxford. And he's a distinguished New Testament professor at one of our state universities. And he calls the material I'm going to use, he calls it the undisputed Pauline material. He is an agnostic leaning toward atheism. That's his own definition. He says that I'm an agnostic leaning toward atheism. And then when he's defending the historicity of Jesus, he says this. This is an interesting one-liner. He says, don't get angry with me. I am not a Christian. I'm just telling you what the data are. Pretty good. Not a Christian. And Bart Armand calls the sources I'm going to use the seven out of the 13 books that bear Paul's name. Critics call them the undisputed epistles of Paul. That would take, maybe during a question you want to pursue it, um, they accept the, those Pauline epistles. I'll tell you what they are if you're interested. They're the major ones we use. But the critics will cite them, use them as much as you want. If you don't cite them, they will cite them. Because you might say to me, why are you using a New Testament text? Because the critics use the New Testament text, the same one I'm using. Why do they let you use it? Because as Barterman says, it's undisputed. It's undisputedly authoritative. These are people who don't come close to thinking the Bible is inspired. What are the seven books that bear Paul's name that are undisputed? Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now Philemon's one chapter long and it's not used for much theology, but the other six, major. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, major. I'm only going to use verses today from 1st Corinthians and Galatians. And no critic begrudges, I mean, there may be one in the world that I can think of. One. You see, see, you say, well, see, there's one. You know how long my bibliography is on the resurrection? French, German, English? About 3,700 sources. I study these guys for a living. I have 1,200 pages on notes on where they line up on different views. And one disputes this material that I know of. One specialist now. You've got to be a specialist. I don't care how much you don't believe, but you've got to be a specialist. Just like, you know, you're not going to go to a paper boy to have your tooth pulled. You have to be a specialist. But you probably don't care if the specialist is an atheist or a theist. You've got to be a dentist. You've got to be an oral surgeon. Right? I want a specialist. But I don't care how liberal he is. From this point on, I'm only going to use facts that critical scholars allow, okay? I'm only going to use facts that critical scholars allow. We'll start with this. Paul wrote this material about 55 AD. So I could stop right here, 
because this is really good. Only 25 years? Boy, we caught, we caught maybe most of the people in this room remember, can remember things well at 25 years. But Paul wrote this 25 years earlier. Now, this doesn't make much difference, but he said, I gave this to you Corinthians when I came. When did he come? This is the most readily ascertainable date in the New Testament. Paul came to Corinth 51 to 52 AD. It's really clear how we, we can get that date. It's literally etched in stone. But that drops this difference to about 21 and a half years later. Not a big difference, but we are moving in the right direction. 21 and a half years after the cross, we have an undisputed reference to six people and groups, three of each, three individuals, three groups, who the people themselves who were there, the eyewitnesses, claim they saw the risen Jesus. Now, if they saw the risen Jesus, that, that's early, early, early. Because according to the New Testament, Jesus was only around for 40 days after he died. So now you're down to 40 days. So if they saw him, that's early, and if they saw him, they're an eyewitness. But how do you show that's the case? How do you know these guys are early eyewitnesses and not exaggerating, or worse, lying? All right, here's where we are so far. Plus 25, he writes it. Three and a half years earlier, he gave it to them. He gave the lecture. He said, you know what I did when I came to Corinth. Okay, where and from whom, sorry, when and from whom, well, where too? Where, when, and from whom did Paul receive this material? Remember, early eyewitnesses, early eyewitnesses are, it, that's our goal. And I, will, I, I can give this to you if you want, um, if you want to push during a uh, Q&A, but the consensus New Testament view, the consensus New Testament view, even from skeptics, Bart Ehrman will concede this, the skeptic I just told you. The earliest consent, the consensus view is that Paul received this material about plus five. Plus five. You say, yeah, I don't remember numbers like that in the New Testament. How did you get plus five? Here's the death of Jesus, ground zero. Critical scholars put Paul's conversion usually at one, two, or three years after the cross. I'd say a fair average is two or three. I think Bart Ehrman himself, it's one or the other. He's either two or three years after the cross, the skeptic. He's the agnostic leaning toward atheism. And they put the conversion of Paul at about plus, let's say, you know, plus two and a half. Paul says in Galatians 1, 18, he says, I went up to Jerusalem three years later to see those who were scholars before me, okay? Ground zero, Paul comes to Jesus, has his experience on the road to Damascus at plus two or plus three. Three years later, he goes up to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and spends 15 days with them. And a famous comment by a very famous Cambridge New Testament scholar of the last generation, C.H. Dodd, the men spent 15 
days together, and it's safe to say that they did more than talk about the weather. If you were Peter, if you were Peter, what's the one question you would make sure you ask? Sorry, if you were Paul, what's the one question you'd ask of Peter and James before you left town? Here's my one question. I'll tell you what I saw on the way to Damascus if you tell me what you saw when you say the risen Jesus appeared to you. Now think about this. Peter, James the brother of Jesus, and Paul. Paul was a persecutor who thought he was doing God a favor to take the lives of children, men, women, at least imprison them, but also there were some deaths. And he says, I wasn't worthy to be called an apostle, but God in his grace called me and so on. Peter, he denied his Lord three times, and later he's back in the fold. James was an unbeliever. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, the Greek text basically says, his family thought he was mentally ill. The Greek text says they thought he was beside himself. And they tried to get him out of the public eye so as not to embarrass the family. And Paul could have said, you know, Paul wasn't afraid to ask straight out. Uh, I'm not picking on you guys because, you know, I was a loser too. But... Uh, What did you guys think when you saw Jesus for the first time? What did you think? James, when he appeared to you, this is the only time in the New Testament the appearance to his brothers recorded. James, what did he say? Bro, it's me. Touch me if you want. I'm here. I'm concerned about you. What would you have heard James say? All right, they're all here, and they're exchanging testimonies. Paul says, 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem. Critics put this event at about 48 AD, or plus 18, still very early. Now, in Galatians 1, we assume Paul was talking about the gospel because the, gospel, the, the book of Galatians is all about the gospel. You could say one sentence survey of Galatians could be, this is the gospel, get it right, don't make it bigger, don't make it smaller, preach the right thing, that's it, go do it. Galatians 1 is about ascertaining the gospel. <clears throat> I can't imagine, and nobody else can either, I can't imagine him getting away from 15 days and not ask these guys about the gospel. But in Galatians 2, he specifically asks them about the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2, 2. 14 years I went back up to Jerusalem, and I set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. What? Yeah, I laid the gospel on the line. I presented the gospel to them to see if we were on the same page. I mean, I didn't want to go off and teach something and be against the guys in Jerusalem. Just a few verses later, five words in English, they added nothing to me. 
they added nothing to me. And then in verse 9 of Galatians 2, they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, Christians today still give the right hand of fellowship or lay hands on somebody who's going out to missions, deacon, elder, pastor. We ordain people. But you, we don't make a practice. It's kind of a foreign idea to do that with people who are heretics. I mean, it almost goes without saying, right? You're a heretic, and we're going to bless you today. Doesn't really work. So, they added nothing to me, and a few verses later, they lay hands on he and Barnabas, and they say, you take the gospel to the Gentiles, or we'll take it to the Jews. A really neat verse on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, after this early creed of 1 Corinthians 15 that goes all the way back, where consensus view is that Paul received this material plus five. And that is that the consensus view is that Paul got this from them. He ascertained the gospel, they agreed, and then Paul says after the list is done, verse 11, he says, whether it is I or whether it is they, so we preach and so you believe. So we preach and so, we, so you believe. He, what's he talking about? He just got done saying, we all saw the resurrected Jesus. You can ask me, I'll tell you. If not, go ask Peter. Go ask John. Go ask James. You say, well, John wasn't there, was he? He was there the second time in Galatians 2. You got the big four with these names. These names are easily the most influential names in the early church. Two of the twelve, Peter and John, and two who are later commissioned apostles, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus. And they agreed. Paul said, ask them. All right, let's go back here. This is the, the end of this has to do with the don't miss the forest for the trees. This is when Paul heard their testimony, what scholars think. And if he didn't get the actual creed in 1 Corinthians 15, at least he received the data that's presented there. There's virtually no argument on this. You read all the sources. So he goes back right here. He hears the testimony. They told him the testimony at about plus five. But if James, and now it's only James and Peter, if James and Peter gave him the testimony of plus five, they had their testimony before they told him, didn't they? They told Paul. They knew it before Paul came to town. And the material itself, the material in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following is an early creed. It's frequently believed to have two stanzas, and to be orally uh, spread around. We can talk about that. Today, many New Testament scholars believe that a high percentage, 70 to 90 percent maybe, of Jesus' hearers were illiterate. Now, how do you teach somebody something very important when they can't read or write? They can't even sign their name. Well, we do this. 
Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Or a Christian version would be, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Or, what if it's the old rugged cross? What if it's amazing grace? Eileen and I, my wife, were with the Luces there, Peter and Faith, we've been with them this week, and yesterday we spent a little bit of time looking at two old hymns, one by Francis of Assisi, 11th century A.D., and Bernard of Clairvaux, from about the same time. We still sing those songs today, all creatures of our God and King. You can sing that and not be able to write your name. The Jewish culture and other cultures of that time were very good about memorizing texts. Another point for questions if you want. Peter hears it. They had it. And the text had to be formalized. They had their words. I guess you could do it this way. They had their testimony. It had to be formalized. They passed it on to Paul. All right, this formalized stage when a comment became a da-da-da-da-da-da-da, when that was finished. When was it? When did that happen? Jimmy Dunn, James Dunn, uh, Durham University, as reputable as any historical Jesus scholar today, huge name, he says this would not have been translated into a creedal form it wouldn't have taken any more than months, Jimmy Dunn says, months after the event. It was in dot da 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 form. Larry Hurtado, just retired from Edinburgh University, he said days after the event. Now maybe days would be a month, I don't know, but he said days. Here's the event, days, and you have the material. Jimmy Dunn says, at most a few months. Now, it's the spring of the year, so it could have been done, according to Dunn, it could have been done the same year this material could come. Do skeptics say this? Yes, they do. Gert Ludemann, the well-known, often called German New Testament, uh, atheist, German New Testament scholar, says, says plus three. By the way, that's his date when he thinks Paul received it. He's a little bit of an exception to the rule. He doesn't think Paul got it at plus five. He thinks Paul got it at plus three. Atheist New Testament scholar. Bart Ehrman, the skeptic, whose name we've been using. Bart Ehrman, one to two years after the cross. That's when the material becomes standardized. And he calls it what many, 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 many scholars call it. It's a pre-Pauline creed. And Ehrman says, what does pre-Pauline mean? He said, here's pre-Pauline. Paul comes to the Lord about three years later, maybe two. Paul comes to the Lord about three years later. Paul, a pre-Pauline means it was an existence between his conversion and the cross. That's pre-Pauline. Now, Pre-Pauline can be, there's some other things pre-Pauline can be, I'm just telling you what Ehrman says. Ehrman says it comes in this early window right here. 
A lot of these things are pre-Paul. It's not Paul's material. Of course, then again, Paul told you that. Paul said, I gave you what I was given. So, I'm not going to make your conclusion for you. You have to draw your own conclusion. I will add that this material, you say, well, all kinds of things could have happened. This could have happened. They could have done this. They could have lied. They could have... You find five different challenges to this material right in the Gospels. You ready for this? Three of the five challenges are thought up by Christians. Don't tell me question, Christians can't ask tough questions. Three of the five are thought up by Christians. Yeah, you can, ask, you can come up with an alternative thesis, but today, I did an article on this, you can find it on my website, GaryHabermas.com, journal article. Most scholars today have given up naturalistic theories. Here's a naturalistic theory. Jesus didn't die, sorry, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What really happened was fill in the blank. Now, if you just say, no, that kind of stuff doesn't happen, that's a denial. That's just denial. No, I don't believe it. Well, I could just easily say, well, I believe it. Well, I don't. Well, I do. Those are just denials and affirmations. But to have a concentrated response, you need to fill in the blank. Jesus wasn't raised. What really happened was fill in the blank. And critics have almost given up on it. I did a head count. And today, about 23.5% of critical scholars will still fill in that blank. About 23.5%. The majority of critical scholars published in a non-conservative text, peer-reviewed, non-conservative text, the vast majority of scholars do not make naturalistic theories anymore. They'll either just tell you, yep, that's the data, I don't believe it. Say, so why don't you? Are all the planks on the house solid? Yeah, the wood's solid. I'm just not vouching for the house. I'm, my job's over, got the wood. They may not believe. And a common question I get is, why don't people believe if the facts are this strong? They are this strong if you even let the critics speak. I could shut my mouth, not say a thing. You could put several key paragraphs from Bart Ehrman together and get the same thing. And he's far from the only one. So why don't they believe? And a lot of people just assume that a lot of people don't believe, it must be something wrong with the data. No. Let's use our earlier illustration, saying I do. Maybe there's nothing wrong with the data, but I don't feel like getting married. Put yourselves in this situation. What if you introduce your best friend to a blind date? You need to date this man or woman. And I'm gonna tell you, he or she is gonna be the best date you've ever had. I mean, it's pretty bombastic, but we're good friends, so we can be a little bit over the top, you know, and try it. This person's fantastic. You might even get a bride or a groom out of the deal. All right, all right, go out. And your friend comes back, what did you think? This scenario is may be very possible, 
it's perhaps it's probably probable the person is going to say at best great person hey i'll even agree with you after just one date i mean you know there's more but after just one date this is the most convincing person i've ever met who might be a candidate down the road for marriage oh well hey can i be your best man can i be your maid of honor Look, you're making a bad assumption. You think that if the person's the neatest person I ever dated, I'm ready to get married. Read my lips. I don't want to get married. Why not? A whole lot of reasons. But just believe me for now. I don't want to get married. What if I kept nagging you? Wasn't he or she really good? Yeah. Have a good time? Oh, yeah. Nice? Yep. Smart? Yep. Nice looking, yep. Don't want to get married. No. That happens in the gospel too because most doubt. I gave a second lecture today, and I'll just make this statement and stop, and you folks can pursue it. Most doubt. This is from psychological surveys of believers and unbelievers, hundreds of people. The, the four psychologists and I who've been working on this have worked on this study for 15 years. Just get ready to publish it. By far the majority of doubters doubt for emotional reasons. Emotional reasons. We all have glasses. We all have glasses that are colored the way we look at the world. I'm German. Part of my glasses have German panes in them. Part of my glasses say American and your glasses say whatever. But those are things that say, my favorite blank is blank. We have angles on things. Glasses are angles, and they include prejudices, they include beliefs, they, think, they include things that are true, they include things that are false. But it's the way you look at the world. And that's the main reason people don't usually decide based on the facts. Not even most of the time. Now, if it's a simple decision, fine. You want this job or this job? I'll take the best one. But usually on something major, like relationships, and God's a relationship, we don't make decisions based on the data. We make decisions based on how we feel. It's demonstrable. So I'm just telling you a little bit about doubts and why people have them, but I'm also telling you, if critics can admit this data, why don't they believe? Because data and belief are not necessarily the same. They don't necessarily go together. So I'm submitting today that the data for the resurrection is firm. We have early eyewitnesses. Uh, maybe you want to pursue a question, something like, yeah, but you're asking us to believe in the supernatural. What about that? Be glad to respond to that. But this looks like pretty good data. Not everybody wants to say yes, but if you said yes to the Lord, or you feel like saying yes, I'm just saying there's a good foundation here. So, Pastor? Thank you, Gary. Um, we're going to have some opportunity for questions. Graham's got the roving mic whilst um, he's getting himself warmed up. I'll ask you a question. Um, eyewitnesses, very early record of what they saw. 
But how do we know that what they wrote is what we've now got? How can we rely upon the tr transmission of their record down 2,000 years? Yeah, you got me. I quit. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to answer that. But we have, we have early manuscript portions. And scholars go by families of texts. And these people are spread out around the Mediterranean world. Later, still pretty early, there's going to be translations of this material into multiple translations. There's going to be multiple manuscripts. Now, if you think, this is not quite the way it works, but if you think of you folks here as geographical centers where scripture is being copied, and let's just say, here's a center right here, here's one, and here's one. If somebody halfway up this group leaves a line out, and that kind of stuff happens, mm -hmm. they leave a line out. Everybody after them probably either makes something up, says, I think I know those words by heart, and puts their own words in, and misses one or two of them. Or they, you know, they leave it out, they do something. Now, everybody in the rest of that family may blow it, except for mm -hmm. a few people who memorize it. But they won't leave that sentence out because they're not copying from the same script. They don't leave the sentence out. And today we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts. If you put all manuscripts together, actually I just saw this figure. We have more manuscripts for the Old Testament than we do for the New Testament, just slightly. But if you put all the manuscripts together, we have enough that through uh, what's called lower criticism, you can, t you can go through these things and make Xeroxes and never wreck the material and, and tell what's going on here and when the words were left out and about how far back in the process it happened. And, but we have the early text. And so that's just one reason. We have the creedal reactions. We have some other specific pieces of evidence that have to be explained. I'll just leave that there. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we have good things to go on. So if there was a... a, a um, aberration in the text, you would think most likely it's going to happen right here, not there, not there, and so when you put it together, you will have, there'll be a mistake somewhere, and then you have mm -hmm. to start doing detective work and find out where mm -hmm. the mistake is. Now, if the mistake doesn't happen until the 5th century AD, that's not a problem. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, no major discrepancies mm -hmm. of that kind. None. Now, when students go, I'm not a Greek scholar. I mean, I, made, I minored it in school, but I'm very far from a scholar. But when people walked around in school with these red plastic New Testaments that you probably have on your shelf, mm -hmm. everybody has these critical texts. And at the bottom are the most important variant readings. So even a student studying Greek can tell where the variations are. It's, it's pretty well made known to everybody where we are right now with problems. And nothing to speak of that would changes material. And you mentioned 5,800 manuscripts of the, of the New Greek Testament. Greek only. Yeah, of, the Old Test of the New Testament, and varying from just a few verses to whole books. But how would that compare to, say, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, which are about his conquest of Ramsgate in, whatever it is, 54 BC? The best ancient document that would compare to the New Testament is Homer's 
Iliad. Mm -hmm. It's the best one, which is amazing because it's way before the Caesars. But, I mean, you might think that that's got more, but you'd also think they'd be torn up and, you know, messed up. The Iliad is the best. When I went to school, outside the New Testament, when I went to school, there used to be about 650 copies of the Iliad. Today, Iliad copies have gone through the roof. We're now up to 1,800 Iliad copies. That's fantastic, or portions of copies. That's excellent. But if this were a ball game, and I know it's not the same as a ball game, but just to give you an idea, the final score would be 5,800 to 1,800. Now, that's, you can't score them that way, but I'm just saying even the best is not in the ballpark. Caesar, last time I checked, seven copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars. Seven copies in the ancient world, pretty good. 5,800, I'll take 5,800. Okay, thank you. Right, um, any questions? Time to, to think. Hi, Gary. Could you tell us if there are any non-biblical sources that support the early uh, disciples' Jesus? accounts? Yeah. Good question. Non-biblical sources. Um, I have a chapter that's on my website. You can get it freely. Nothing on my, my website's for sale. GaryHabermas.com. And it's a chapter in a book. By the way, you can get a list of the creeds there, too, if you want to know where these creeds are. I have a list of about 40 of them, but I wrote that book over 20 years ago. Today, that list is going to be a lot longer than 40. That's these early kind of pre-textual. They're as important as anything we have, and more important than the secular sources. But people are interested, what does secular history say about Jesus? I list there a dozen and a half sources for Jesus that go to about 150 years after he was, after ground zero. You might think 150, yeah, it's getting a little high. But, you know, interestingly enough, Bart Ehrman does this, and he goes 100 years. He doesn't say anything over 100 is bad. He just goes 100 years. And let me tell you one thing he finds. On the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus is one of the unanimously held facts among scholars, um, he finds 12 independent sources for the crucifixion slash death of Jesus within 100 years of his birth. Four of the 12 that he uses are not in the New Testament, and they're not Christian. Um, but I have 18, and these 18 mention about 60 aspects from the life teaching, death, even resurrection of Jesus, and some very early church items, total of 60, never open the New Testament, never touch a Christian source. And the source is on my website if you want to get it. Wait, wait, wait for the mic. Uh, <laughs> it's a personal question. At the outset, uh, you described uh, how you had gone through a, uh, a crisis in your faith. Why and how were you brought back to faith? Why? I was stupid. <laughs> I mean, I, I, was, um, I read everything you could read. 
I had two passions in life. Just because it bugs me if somebody was to say, were you a nerd? I'll tell you, my life at that time revolved around American football and hockey. I played it pretty much every afternoon, and at night I started studying. I always went back to the same point. Where did I leave off? And I actually got to a point, besides the Buddhist incident, I actually got to a point where I said, I, I can't prove the resurrection. Well, prove is not a good word anyway, but I can't show it happened. The, the data just aren't there. And I quit for a little while. And then I came back to it. So I also, and I said to myself, I don't have any objection to somebody who says they want to believe the resurrection of Jesus. But don't tell me you have data. By the way, I used to debate Christians. Let's remember that. I used to debate Christians. One of them, I remember one of them got very, very mad at me. This is Detroit. If you know anything about Detroit, you don't hear too much about the city because everybody's dead. It's a, it's a rough, rough town, and I grew up there. Um, this guy wanted to fight. This guy wanted to fight. Oh, I just thought of, here's another one. A guy came up to me in an inner city college, big guy. He was probably 6'3", 6'4", 325 pounds. And he said, I understand you don't think the Bible's the inspired word of God. And I said, you're right, I don't. And he said, man, you've got seven demons in you. And he spun around on his heel and he walked away. And I went, I thought to myself, seven demons, fight. Seven demons or fight. Maybe the demons aren't so bad. <laughs> that was another guy. So I, I wasn't trying to get Christians upset, but I was, I didn't care if I upset people or not. I wasn't trying to. I wasn't mean. I really wasn't. But I was wanting somebody to come up to me and say, Here's where you blew it. You took this fork in the road, and you should have taken this one. This is where scholarship is. But in those days, there was almost nothing like um, good apologetic-type arguments. And there are a lot of New Testament professors that made really good arguments. But not enough. There's far more today. And um, I don't know. I, would just, I think it was that emotional thing. I was going through emotional doubt, I'll tell you that. So maybe it was American football, hockey, and dating. Maybe that was what got me in trouble. I don't know. But I did, I did uh, doubt it at a number of levels. Um, I questioned the resurrection. I debated Christians. And I did get very close to Buddhism. Now there's one down the front here, Graham. Hi, Gary. I just uh, wanted to get your view on the so-called Q source, underlying potentially some of the Gospels. The Q source? Okay, what about it? I'm just curious about your view on it, whether it, sorry, whether it exists, the veracity of that kind of concept. Whether there's a Q. All right, I can beg off real easily on this because I'm not a New Testament specialist, but I'll give you my two cents. Um, I have bound myself, you've heard my argument, I have bound myself to use only the data that critical scholars allow. They generally allow Q. So 
I use Q in the argument because most of them use Q. If I'm going to do it with my students, I'll say, this much we know about Q. Now, I, I teach chiefly at the PhD level. So these guys, in fact, I teach totally at the PhD level. These guys are really sophisticated. But I'll say to them, at least this much about Q is true. At the very least, Q is the material, how it's identified. It's the material that's in Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. Now, there's some ways around those arguments and people who don't like Q. For example, they might think Mark's a source even if Mark doesn't say it in that way. There's different kinds of comebacks, but let's just take the old view. Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. I tell people, don't be upset. I'm not inventing a source that's not here. I'm using Q as the material we have in Matthew and Luke. The words are there. We have to deal with them no matter what you call them. So I don't care what you call them. You've got to deal with the text. So that's my view. But I use it because it's more of a methodology than anything else. I use critical, I use critical approach to things. Most critics allow Q, although I will tell you, more people are questioning Q today probably than any other time in the last many decades. They asked, what is Q? What is it? It is simply a designation from a German word, Quellup. It's simply a, a source that the Germans, I guess, were first ones on the block, so they got to name it. Just a name given to these verses. We make it a lot bigger and more technical than it is, but it's the verses that are in Matthew and Luke that are not in Mark. I tell my students, if it's in Matthew and Mark, it's called Mark. If it's in Luke and Mark, it's called Luke. If it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's called Mark. If Mark's there, it's Mark. The stuff that's in Matthew alone is called M. The material that's in Luke alone is called L. And the material that's in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark, is called Q. It's not anywhere near as complicated as it sounds, but that's how the different sources in the Gospels are lined up. And there was a question. Oh, you were going to ask that. Okay. okay. That's great, but you can answer two questions with one answer. Oh, Graham, Graham's got a question. Am I allowed one? Um, yeah. Uh, a thing that I often get thrown at me, um, people will say to me, well, but you can't try, you can't, the, the church in about 400 or something AD threw away a load of material that didn't see, suit what they wanted to teach. They did what? Threw it away or, or suppressed it or hid it or something. Can you, I mean, they hid uh, the things they don't want? No, but we're talking things like things like the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of the Hebrews, Gospel oh. of Barnabas. So could you please tell us why we can't <clears throat> trust those? No, they didn't throw them away. In fact, the data are going the other way. A number of New Testament scholars are bringing the dates of Thomas, Gospel of Thomas. There's more than one weird book with Thomas's name in it. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, several of them are being brought back a little bit earlier. Uh, Daryl Bach, a very prominent evangelical New Testament scholar and well represented in critical conversations. I think I just saw recently where Daryl brings those two back to about 130. So 
They're, be, they're being brought back early. So what I'm saying is, far from being kicked out and burned and everything else, we're finding things all over the place. So it's there. What, but what's the value? What's um, the value? Yeah, they're, they're not in the New Testament canon. They're Gnostic. So. Gnostic books are almost always theological, almost never historical. That's just their angle. But the fact that Bart Ehrman includes Thomas and Peter in his list of 12 sources for the death of Jesus shows you that every once in a while, even a book that's not meant to be an historical book can share things that are true. Now, if you want me to give you a secular illustration, if I were teaching in a history department, uh, I would like to see a person write a master's thesis on what history can we learn from Homer's Iliad. Was there a Trojan horse? Where's Troy? What do you think about this and that? Well, come on, it's poetry. Right, but we do dig historical nuggets out of books that aren't meant to be totally historical nuggets. So I think, I think that's a fair comparison to the Gnostic sources. Sometimes Gnostic sources, Thomas, written verse, or often translated in verse. Um, so there are some things there that are important, but later, later than the Gospels, by far later than Paul, we're getting 80 years up there, and anybody who puts those two books at 150, which still a lot do, 150, 160, they're 100 years older than Paul, so they don't, and they're not historical, so they don't really compete with the New Testament uh, body of data. Oh, by the way, they believe weird things like uh, Jesus was that Jesus was made God at the cross, or he became the Son of God at the cross, or when he appeared, he appeared in a disembodied form, but he really was raised and he really appeared. For the most part, you can pick things out in the Gnostic books that aren't even opposed to Orthodox Christianity, or if they are, they at least are on the side of the same, what I mean is, they would say, yes, Jesus was raised, but we wouldn't like the way Jesus is raised. But he was raised. They don't say he stayed in the ground. So the Gnostic sources just, I mean, they're there. Look at them. If you can find something in them worthwhile, make a case. Write an article. But for the most part, they don't interfere. They, they present a lot more data, and people have to study them. But they're not going to come against our best data and say this annuls this or that. The book of Thomas, by the way, the Gospel of Thomas, starts out with the words, the living Jesus says. Now, scholarship's divided, but a lot of scholars believe that Thomas has a resurrection because the entire book consists of words that the resurrected Jesus said. So again, don't miss the forest for the trees. You go, where's the resurrection? Look at, look at the beginning. So now there's, you know, there's different views in that verse, but it starts out, the living Jesus spoke, the living Jesus said. Duncan, and uh, that'll be our last one. Gary, this is something that's always um, intrigued me. So uh, in, in Matthew's Gospel, I think he's the only one that records this, we, we read that when Jesus died on the cross, that uh, tombs broke open and lots of people were raised from the dead and went into Jerusalem ahead of Jesus. And I've always been intrigued by that. And uh, 
Do you have, have you studied that yourself and got any, any comment on what was, what was happening there? Um, okay, have I studied that? Matthew 27. No, I haven't studied, oh, I mean, I've looked at it like anybody who works, looks at this area, but it's not about Jesus, and, well, it's in Matthew 27 for a reason, but, no, I don't, but, but a really good friend of mine, uh, Mike Lacona, prominent New Testament scholar, has said recently, and gotten a lot of trouble for it with some real conservative evangelicals, that he is open to the view, I think last time I talked to him, he thinks it's 50-50, that Matthew is recording material that Matthew knows is not historical, but it's sort of like a parable. Because in the ancient world, Mike has found 10 examples of bombastic type reports when great people die, are born and die. And so Mike's, for instance, there's one in Josephus that's wild. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact details. A creature wanders into the temple area, and it's like, it's like a cow that gives birth to a horse. I mean, it's, it's not that. It's something like that. And Josephus is widely thought. Josephus is not saying this really happened. That's the way you wrote about, that's the way you did fireworks in ancient literature. So Mike said, I think that Matthew may be recording fireworks here. A lot of Christians went off on him. I am one of about, I think, 15 people, most of whom are um, distinguished New Testament scholars. And right away, when Mike got challenged and someone said, you can't go there, uh, 15 of us signed a sheet saying, um, Mike can hold that view. I don't. Virtually nobody in the list held that view. But... What we said was, you can hold that view and not necessarily be disagreeing with Scripture. You'd be disagreeing with, on Mike's view, you'd be disagreeing with Scripture if you said, Matthew meant it literally, Matthew was wrong. All right, then you're disagreeing with Scripture. Mike's thesis is, Matthew wanted to tell the fireworks view, like a cow has a horse. So we signed it. I tell you the names of the people on the list, but it's a who's who of New Testament scholarship. And uh, all we said was he's got a right to say it. We didn't say that was our view, and it's not the view, of, it's not my view. That's about as much as I would say, because I, I don't think it's really relevant to the resurrection. I think Matthew meant to say it happened. Notice he says they appeared after Jesus was raised from the dead. So, I mean, it's got issues. Tom Wright says, Tom Wright says, I don't know, I've heard him say this so many times, I, I don't know what to think of that passage. I've never seen anyone who handles that text well. That's the way Tom deals with it. He just lets it go. That's probably what I would do. Thank you. One last thing is that, of course, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is the first, the beginning of the complete regeneration of the entire universe. What has that meant to you personally? Everything. Everything. There's nothing in the world I'd rather speak about. Um, I'm glad you asked that. He didn't set me up for that. I didn't say, ask me this question. It's just where I am. Why was I arguing with Christians back then? Why was I checking every source there was? Why have I looked at 
3,700 texts, in my bibliography at least, on these sources. Because if Christ has been raised from the dead, everything of importance follows in Christianity. In fact, Paul says it very well. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your preaching is in vain, your witnessing is in vain. He said, your, he said if Christ has not been raised, you've not had a single sin forgiven. This one really hurt because some of you know that my wife, I'm married and Eileen's here. We got married, we've been married for 20 years, but my, I hate to say, I just won't say first and second wife, but the wife of my four children, the mother of my four children, died of stomach cancer in 1995. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our loved ones who've died in Christ have died in vain. If you've lost a loved one, I talked to somebody this morning who lost her husband last week, pretty fresh. If you've lost your loved one and someone tells you, well, Christ didn't rise, so it's in vain, that's pretty big. So for all these reasons, your preaching, vain or not, sins, vain or not, loved ones who die in Christ, vain or not. Um, Paul says, in fact, Oh, by the way, he says, if Christ has not been raised, he says two Greek words, but similar meaning. He says twice, your faith is vain. How many places can you find in scripture where the writer says your faith is vain? This is why we do talk about the gospel so much, God's side and I do. Because Paul said if there's no God's side, if there's no fact, this side means nothing. How can you say I do to somebody who doesn't exist? I'll probably be coming next, but, um, you know, marriage or something. It'll be one of the weird things. But how do you say I do to somebody who doesn't exist? Well, Paul says if there's no resurrection, you don't have a basis for any of this. So you may say I do, but you're like saying I do to Hercules or something. You know, he didn't live. So it means everything. And so he says in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all men most miserable. Think about it. With the resurrection, we have everything. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. We are of all men most miserable. Some people like to say, no, nah, my faith stands on its own. I'm glad for the facts, but we don't need them. Really? Paul says this nullifies this. So... It's everything. It's what happens after death. I used the phrase this morning, if the resurrection happened, we should be on the yellow brick road to Oz. We should be on the Christian life pursuing heaven. That means the second greatest command, what are you doing with people who are hurting? What are you doing with the poor? What are you doing with food? Jesus said that's our second greatest command. Do you know what Christians think the second greatest command is? To argue about whether Luther, Calvin, or Wesley were, were boss. And, you know, do you believe in sovereignty or free will? Well, that's a neat discussion. I like to talk about it like everybody else, but I'm not going to rest my faith on it, right? All, as we said this morning in an authentic comment where Wesley says he expected to find his, uh, his what should I say? Whitfield. Best, Whitfield. George Whitfield. Whitfield, I was going to say, maybe his best friend, I don't <clears> know. <throat> he said, yeah, he'll be too close to the throne for me. I probably won't see him in heaven. Wesley didn't fight over it. 
know, why are we fighting over it? Those discussions are fun, but they're not the foundation of our faith. It's all depends on the resurrection. And Jesus said the second greatest command is not debating. The second greatest command is loving your neighbors yourself. And then he says immediately, go and do thou likewise. So love God with everything you have. Love your neighbors yourself. If we're in the yellow brick road, we should avoid, as I said this morning, avoid the lions and tigers and bears and do something for the kingdom. So that's the bottom line. The resurrection sets up our faith.